It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 67 of Sports Day Plus. Mere seconds, it is the start of my conversation with renowned sports gambler Billy Walters. I'm actually spending two full shows with Billy discussing his wild life as detailed in his book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. I am your host, Trey Elling. Give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave, and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Billy Walters is a highly successful real estate developer, investor, philanthropist, and one of the most famous sports gamblers on the planet. He's just told his life story in the outstanding new book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Spending a couple of shows talking to Billy about the details of his life. Billy, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. So this book was incredible, Billy. It's no doubt going to be one of my favorite books of the year when I put out my year-end favorite books list. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, uh, I initially started writing the book in 2003 and then changed my mind, decided I wasn't going to write a book. And then there were a number of things that took place in my life that I never thought would ever take place. Uh, I ended up going to federal prison. Uh, I walked into federal prison when I was 71 years old. Then there were some things that happened while I was in federal prison that uh, that confirmed the fact that I had to write a book. I had to tell my story. Uh, I mentored two dozen men while I was in prison. It really opened my eyes to a lot of different things that uh, that I hadn't been exposed to. My daughter committed suicide while I was in prison. That was the final thing that took place that uh, that you know it cemented the cemented the the fact that I had to write this book. Your story uh, is one that early on finds you in unique circumstances. You're born into complete poverty in small town Kentucky in 1947. On top of that, your dad dies when you're around 18 months old. And your mother, who was a teen mom before MTV made it cool to be a teen mom, was more focused on chasing her own vices over raising in your two sisters. You and your older sisters were each entrusted to extended family after your mom ran off. For you, that meant staying with your grandmother, Lucy Quisenberry. Why is she one of the two most important women in your life? Actually, actually, Trey, I could have had four parents, and I couldn't have had a better role model than Lucy Quisenberry. I mean, she taught me, you know, the most important things to me in my life, and they're still the most important things to me today. And you know, that's mutual respect for others. That's, you know, work ethic. Uh, first words, you know, she taught me uh, were yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I was raised up in the Baptist church. Uh, my entire social life from the time I can remember was I was going to Sunday school on Sunday morning, church afterwards, training, you know, Sunday night, prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And I went to a Christian youth organization on Saturday night. And then, uh, my grandmother worked two jobs. Uh, she was a very proud lady. She didn't take any assistance from anyone, nor she, nor would she, she just wouldn't do that. And uh, so I couldn't have had a better role model than her. You were exposed to the hustler's life at an early age, having spent many a day and night in your childhood at your Uncle Harry's pool hall, which you admit provided many life lessons that church could not provide. Like what? Well, what happened when I was four years old, my grandmother was working two jobs. 
we didn't have a daycare center. I, I was born and raised in a small town in central Kentucky, 1,400 people. And uh, so there was only one place she could take me, and that was to my uncle's pool room. So my uncle, when I was four years old, he just went back to the back pool table and gave me a pool stick. He put up two wooden Coca-Cola cases, which I stood on top of, and he went back to work, and I started banging pool balls when I was four years old. And by the time I was six uh, in the first grade, I was racking balls in there and playing penny and nine ball. I was playing nine, a, a pool game. It's called nine ball. I was playing for a penny a game. And uh, so my life was, you know, I'm in church every time the doors open and I'm in a pool room working for my uncle and playing pool. So that was essentially uh, my formative years. And I'm 77 years old today. And that's kind of what I am today. So. You're 77 today, and you have to go back nearly 70 years for the first sports bet you ever made. What was that first sports bet you made around the age of nine? Well, my uh, my heroes were the New York Yankees, uh, uh, Whitey Ford, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, and you know Casey Stengel, and you know the New York Yankees. And uh, you know I had a neighbor; his name was Elwood Branstetter, and uh, his father and he they were avid Brooklyn Dodger fans. And uh, so the Yankees had beat uh, the Dodgers in, in every World Series they played them in. And then the final World Series they played them in in New York. Uh, I had a paper out. My grandmother uh, had helped arrange for me to get a paper out. And I'd had it for a couple of years. And I saved up uh, about $125. And uh, I was just so sure that the, the Yankees were going to win the World Series. Elwood's father, Woody Branstetter, he had a, a grocery store and a meat market there in the little small town I was from. So I bet him the entire $125 that the Yankees would beat the Brooklyn Dodgers in the World Series. Of course, Mickey Mantle was hurt for that series. He didn't play, and and that was the only series that the Brooklyn Dodgers ever beat the New York Yankees. And I lost uh, I lost my two years' uh, savings that, that I'd earned, you know, with a paper route. It was... Uh, most devastating loss I've ever taken uh, before. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, I could lose $25 million today and it wouldn't probably hurt as much as that $125 did when I was nine years old. I mean, $125 is a lot of money. I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old right now. $125 is a lot of money to my nine-year-old in 2023. You uh, take inflation into account. $125 had to have felt like a, a million to you back then. Well, I did, especially I've worked two, two years on a, with a paper out. I had a morning paper out and an afternoon paper out. And I got up every morning and I'm in a rural town, small rural town in Kentucky. So it's not like these houses right next door to each other. I'm riding a bicycle, you know, probably at least 10 miles in the morning, 10 in the afternoon, delivering papers. Saturday, I'm going to each place and collecting for the papers. And so it was, it was two years of, you know, hard-earned money, and I lost every penny of it. Uh, along, with, I mean, along with the paper, I, I cut grass, I shine shoes. I did a lot of things to save up this $125. But uh, I was just sure the New York Yankees couldn't, you know, they, they weren't going to lose. I mean, and, uh, and what I learned then and what I know now, there are no sure things in life. No, definitely not in the world of sports. Now, your grandmother, for as important as she was and still is for you, she died when you were around 14 or 15 years old. Just how hard was that for you? 
it was the most difficult thing I've ever ever faced in my life. It was uh, I thought essentially my life as I knew it at that time was over because she was my entire life. I mean, again, as you noted, she was my mother, she was my father, uh, she was the siblings that I didn't have, and she was the person who had raised me as far back as I can remember. And uh, she taught me everything that I knew. She taught me. She took me to church. She she taught me business. She took me to this small country bank, Hart County Deposit Bank, when I was actually seven years old. And uh, she'd already made it up with a banker, but uh, I wanted to buy a power lawnmower to cut grass with. And she took me in there, and she uh, took me up to the banker, and we sat down, and we went through this mock deal. I didn't know it was a mock deal at the time, but her and the banker already had it made up. And uh, the bank lent me $40 to buy her a Huffy Power lawnmower with, and my grandmother co-signed the note. and So she taught me that at a very early age. And then she took me back to the same bank when I was nine years old, and she had co-signed my note for $90 to get the morning and afternoon paper routes. And uh, so uh, so she taught me business. She taught me, uh, you know, work ethic. She taught me respect. Uh, she just taught me so many things. And and uh, so 15 years old, I mean, I'm born and raised in a small rural town of 1,400 people. As you can imagine, uh, losing her was my life. At the time, I thought, you know, I mean, she, she was my whole world. He is renowned sports gambler Billy Walters, sharing some of the details of his life story as initially told in his excellent book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Coming up, a continuation of my hour-long conversation with Billy on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back with renowned sports gambler Billy Walters. He's also a highly successful real estate developer, golf course developer, investor, and philanthropist. He, last year, late last year, released a book that shared his life story. It's titled Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Well worth the price of admission. Highly recommend you check that out wherever books are sold. And if you'd like to hear the entire conversation, it is spanning over the course of two shows for me. I do recommend you go to my podcast, booksonpod.com. You can also search Books on Pod wherever you get your podcast to hear the full hour and a half plus conversation. You had to do a, a lot of growing up really fast as a kid and as a teenager and even as a young adult as well. Like it. 16, you end up getting married and becoming a dad for the very first time. By 19, you were divorced and uh, getting married for a second time, eventually ending up with three total kids with these two women, both of whom uh, you divorced before too long. Now, while you worked your butt off to provide for your wives and kids, you admit to being more married to the gambler's life at this point in time. At what point did you realize the lesson that you talked about in this book about recognizing that time was far more valuable than any amount of money that you could provide for your family for the sake of their present and future? Well, actually, I got married, excuse me, when I was 17 years old the first time. Excuse me. And and the rest of the ages are, are correct. And my grandmother was gone, and I'm not making any excuses, but you know, my mother had been an alcoholic, my father was an alcoholic, and, and, and I was susceptible, didn't realize at the time, but uh, I had an issue with alcohol, and 
I was still growing up. I mean, uh, I was I was a kid when I got married at 17 years old. Of course, I had a daughter and had responsibility and, and you know, uh, I had two jobs. I worked at a bakery in the morning and I went, went to school during the day and I worked at a service station three eleven at night to support my family. First marriage was, you know, I married a girl that had a very similar background to myself. Uh, she, she was raised by a grandmother and bottom line is, uh, you know, it was, I, I guess we had a lot of things in common. And uh, the other thing we had in common, we were, we were two young kids with raging hormones and next thing you know, we have a child. So hmm. that marriage lasted no time. Uh, you're right. I got remarried again right away. That marriage actually lasted nine years. And, uh, but, uh, that, that entire period of time that I went through, I had this issue. I didn't realize it at the time because I didn't drink that often, but when I drink, I would get hammered. And when I drank, my personality changed. I did all kinds of stupid things. Uh, I became abrasive. Uh, uh, I would gamble. I would do things that sober. I would normally never do. It was almost like I was on a suicide mission. Hmm. I made a lot of money in the business. I mean, back in the seventies, I was making, you know, six hundred thousand dollars a year in the automobile business. So, uh, and even in the, in the sixties, when I first went in the automobile business, I, you know, I made one year fifty six thousand dollars selling cars. But the bottom line was, all the money that I made, my family lived well, but I never accumulated a penny. I lost every nickel I had gambling, and the only but the only time I lost gambling is is when I drink. And then, of course, I worked at a car lot. I worked there from nine in the morning to nine at night. And many nights I would go to a bar. And, and uh, next thing you know, I'm playing poker all night. And uh, I'd be rolling home at six o'clock in the morning, take a shower and put on a suit and go back to work. And uh, that went on for a period of time. And the uh, in my second marriage, uh, my eldest son, uh, when he was seven years old, was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. And uh, that really, uh, uh, I, I, that was the most difficult thing I've definitely, undoubtedly, I've ever gone through. He, We were told by the doctors he only had 30 days to live. I'd been running the business for a number of years and been very successful, very successful, but really had no capital. Uh, I had kind of floated, uh, I'd operated on other people's money, so to speak. And then what happened is when he was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor, uh, I, you know, I went through a lot of self-blame. I hadn't spent as much time with him as I should have. You know, it was the only thing in my life I'd ever faced I really couldn't do anything about. Hmm. And next thing you knew, I wasn't focused on my business. I was drinking. I lost my business. I went bankrupt. Uh, I got a divorce. Uh, I was, uh, I was really uh, on rock bottom. And uh, I met uh, my wife today, uh, whom I'd met earlier. I'd met her like three years earlier, four years earlier. Well, actually, earlier than that, one percent. But I met her through her parents and her brother. And uh, I just met her briefly. I was at her parents' house one night. And uh, just introduced her briefly. She was in high school, and I was only three years older, but I looked like I was thirty years older, hmm. probably, because. And then later on, when these things happened, I got a divorce. I ran into her brother, who was a good friend of mine, and I asked 
how, you know, how Susan doing? He said, well, you know, she's doing fine and she'd gotten a divorce also. So, uh, we got together and, uh, and I ended up best thing that ever happened to me in my life. There's just no question about it is I married Susan Walter. You know, we've been married now 47 years and, uh, the good news about it is when we got married is I was uh, on rock bottom. It couldn't have gotten any, any worse for me. You know, she and she knew who I was. There was no surprises. I mean, she'd known me for a number of years. She knew I was a gambler. And, and uh, her father, who had been an executive at Philip Morris Tobacco Company, you know, he was a small better. He he would bet on the basketball games and things like that, the high school basketball tournament in Kentucky. And, uh, you know, Gambling in Kentucky is kind of a way of life anyway. Hmm. But when Susan and I got married, like I said, uh, I was I was on rock bottom. I mean, I just got a divorce. I just gone bankrupt. I lost my business. Uh, and uh, there wasn't any place to go but up, so to speak. And then, like I said, we've been married for 47 years, and undoubtedly that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, I'm going to put a pin in your relationship with Susan because I do want to talk a little bit more about that. But I did want to ask you uh, a couple of other things about the late 60s and early 1970s. Now, as you admitted, uh, you started selling cars in Louisville at around the age of 19, and you proved to be really good at it really quickly. You set records at multiple dealerships, eventually owned your own business as well. What was it that clicked for you right away that allowed you to be so good at this? Well, I realized in a hurry, the whole key to, to selling cars was staying busy 100% of the time. Hmm. And I also realized if you didn't really work at it, that there was going to be a lot of lax time and it was just going to be, time was going to be wasted. Because typically, if you're selling cars, uh, the people come in and when they're there, you're busy, you're waiting on them, you're showing them a car, you're you're trying to sell a car, you're, you're doing whatever you're doing. When they leave... You know, back in those days, they were waiting for someone else to come in. <clears throat> well, I realized that very early on, the whole key was staying busy all the time. So if I wasn't busy with a customer, you know, I would be in on the phone and and I would just, I'd pick up the phone and uh, phone book and I would get the prefix of the area that our business was located in and I would just start co-calling people. If I sold someone a car, uh, back in those days, there was a crisscross directory. And the crisscross directory, it would show you everyone that lived on the same street uh, as the address you put in. So I put in the address of the people whom I sold a car to, and everyone on that street, I would send them a postcard, introduce myself, and say, did you see Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so's new car? We're running a sale, and and I would invite them to come down. Everyone I sold a car to, I... I my goal was was to turn them into a referral source. And mm. I paid them a referral fee, and I paid a higher re- referral fee than anyone else in Louisville did. I would also, uh, my, you know, the people who referred business to me, like Thanksgiving, I would send them a turkey. Everyone who I sold a card to, you know, I sent a Christmas card to. Uh, and and then back in those days, in the Courier Journal, every day there were cars in there that people had listed for sale, you know, takeover payments. Well, bottom line was what they were telling you, they couldn't afford the car anymore, but they still needed a car. So I would call those people up. I would have them to come in. I would take their car in and sell them a less expensive car. Hmm. And uh, it was the same, you know, same, it was the same transaction. So that's what I did. So if I wasn't busy with someone on the lot, I was busy on the phone, call, call, call calling people, 
I was busy, you know, sending out cards, you know, follow up with uh, people whom I sold cards to, uh, their neighbors. Uh, I was I was calling referral sources. I stayed busy uh, the entire time. And then what happened after I was there for like five, six months, I mean, I was selling 20 cars a month just on referrals. People were referring uh, business to me. Uh, you know, bottom line is I, I treated people the way they wanted to be treated. So uh, when they referred someone, they felt good about it. On top of that, they were being compensated. I think that's just a good general rule of life, too, is always staying busy. We're at a point in time now where everybody's looking for that excuse to take that break. But it's, uh, I guess, that hustler's mentality that uh, kept you from ever uh, feeling comfortable just being completely bored while you were supposed to be getting paid at work. Well, luckily, Trey, uh, my entire life I've done things that I really enjoy doing. I yeah. love doing it. When I was in the car business, I'm still in the automobile business today. But mm-hmm. I love the automobile business. I love everything about it. Uh I mean, we could talk about the automobile business for the rest of our interview because it's something new every day. It's different every day. It's challenging. It's it's like running multiple businesses. It's very interesting to me, fulfilling. And I really enjoy selling someone a car and making them and their families happy. So uh, that, I, I, I love what I was doing. So to, to me, it really wasn't work. You know, it was it was I, I was able to do something I had a lot of fun doing, you know. He is legendary sports gambler Billy Walters joining me for the full hour tonight and tomorrow night, as a matter of fact, discussing his life story as initially detailed in his excellent book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Came out last year. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Stay tuned because I have more of that conversation with Billy coming up on the other side right here on Sports Day Plus on 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. Back with renowned sports gambler Billy Walters. He's also a highly successful real estate developer, golf course developer, investor, and philanthropist. He, last year, late last year, released a book that shared his life story. It's titled Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Well worth the price of admission. Highly recommend you check that out wherever books are sold. And if you'd like to hear the entire conversation, it is spanning over the course of two shows for me. I do recommend you go to my podcast, booksonpod.com. You can also search Books on Pod wherever you get your podcast to hear the full hour and a half plus conversation. So you went to Vegas, I believe, for the very first time in the spring of 1968 with your second wife, Carol. What was that like? Well, it was really... <laughs> we, we went... Uh, America Express back in those days... They had trips. If you bought the American Express Traveler checks, uh, you, you would get these trips. You, you would go like, they had a trip. You went to Vegas for like three days. Then you went to Honolulu for like three or four days. And uh, so I bought one of these trips and uh, we went to Vegas. We stayed at Caesar's Palace. Caesar's Palace had just opened. And uh, we'd taken the money with us for our vacation. And sure enough, before uh, uh, we, we'd been there in no time, I ended up losing all the money that we had gambling at Caesar's Palace. So uh, we went to Hawaii. Uh, what money we had was what money that Carolyn had with her that she had in her purse. So we spent the last half of the vacation in, the, in Hawaii on Waikiki Beach with uh, very little money. So it was, 
it was a memorable trip, but uh, not not in the way you'd like to remember one. <laughs> Another uh, memorable experience from around this time is the first of a handful of near-death experiences. What was this first near-death experience at a Louisville area Holiday Inn? Somebody when I got robbed? Yes. Okay. Well, the uh, I actually had a nightclub. It was called Butch Cassidy's. And it was a day after the Super Bowl. And... Uh, uh, everybody that I'd owed, I paid, and nobody who owed me had paid me. So, but we had a band there, and we had a cover charge. And that night, I probably collected I don't know four hundred dollars in cover charge, and and most of them were one dollar bills. So I left there about three o'clock in the morning to go home. I pulled up in front of my house, and uh, oh, I think this was uh, I think this was the time that you were hanging out in a hotel room with some colleagues. Oh, you're talking about you're talking about you're talking about in Indianapolis. Oh yes, I said I said Louisville. Yeah, my apologies. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's the reason I was kind of confused. But anyway, uh, yeah, I was I I went to an automobile auction in 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 Indianapolis, Indiana, and after the sale was over, uh, a lot of the car dealers uh, we went and rented a room at a Holiday Inn and we were playing poker, and. Uh, we ordered some food from room service, and uh, when room service delivered the food, or we thought it was room service, we opened the door. Uh, two or three masked men come in with guns drawn and robbed us all, and uh, they put us on the floor. And of course, back during that period of time, I smoked, and uh, and, and I, I probably drank uh, I don't know, twelve, fourteen beers, close to a case of beer. Uh, before they before they came in, I, matter of fact, I just got up. I was getting ready to go to the bathroom, and that's when the, they came in the door with the, with the guns drawn, put us in the floor, robbed us all, and uh, of course, I'm about half drunk, and I'm mouthing off the guy, and again, <laughs> and and the, and the guy said, "Look, I'll blow your goddamn brains out," and he pulled it, finger back, stuck it next to my head. Of course, that sobered me up pretty quick. <laughs> anyway, uh, and then uh, they uh, they finally left. But uh, before they left, I couldn't get to the bathroom, and I disposed of most most of that beer because I'd been laying on the floor too long. So anyway, uh, that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, you know that's that's pretty good, I guess. When you got more than one, when somebody asks you a question about <laughs> you know life threatening experience, and you got more than one, so that. That's the one that uh, that happened when I, I went to the Dieters Indianapolis Auto Auction for a car auction. A bunch of car dealers got together. We we'd actually been doing that every week, so I guess too many people knew about it, and somebody had told somebody and they were weighed in on us. Let's get back to your relationship with Susan now. As you said, it uh, is the most important moment in your life. Why was Susan the beginning of a better you? Yeah, well, again, Susan knew me. She knew everything that there was about me, good, bad, and different. And she knew I drank. She knew I gambled. And Susan never tried to change me, not once in her life. And uh, uh, and regardless of whatever happened, good or bad, you know, she she just understood that's that's what happened. You know, that's the life of a gambler. And uh, and as a result, uh, we've had the greatest marriage that two people could ever have. Uh, if you know. I understand people who get married and, and maybe uh, they think one of them thinks they know the other and the other changes after the, after they're married and they get you know, mad, disappointed, and, and they no longer want to be 
married to that person, but that wasn't the case with you know, Susan. Now, Susan knew everything that there was about me. So when things went in our life uh, in the 47 years, the things that we've, you know, uh, been through, whether it be gambling or whether it be indictments or whether it be, it be going to prison, uh, Susan, you know, she, she knows everything that there is to know about me. And uh, we probably have the closest relationship that two married people could have. And, uh, you know, uh, and we have a real marriage. And a real marriage to me is, you know, you're there for each other. I'm there for her. She's there for me. And there's no questions asked. It's, it, it's kind of, and we both kind of laugh about it because I was in prison for 31 months. And uh, Susan visited me there three times a week. She was there for every visitation. She was the first or second person every morning uh, to be there. She, visitation didn't start till 8 o'clock. A lot of mornings she was out there at 4.30 or 5 o'clock to be the first. And uh, a lot of our friends would say, well, boy, you must be a saint. I mean, I I, I can't imagine, you know, uh, and, you know, and she, she laughs. And, and we, we kind of look at each other. I mean, I would hate to be in a relationship to, to where if she needed me or I needed her that one of us wouldn't be there. I mean, that's just the way I guess the way we were both born and raised, and maybe, I don't know, but I'd hate to be in a relationship to where if I had a problem that came up, that my partner wouldn't be there to support me. But luckily for me, I've got the greatest wife in the world, and uh, we're there for each other, whatever it is. Yeah, and that loyalty was tested pretty early on after y'all got married. Now, I'm speaking to you from Austin, Texas. I would be remiss not to ask about your Guy Clark story. So how was this relationship tested in thanks in part to Texas music legend Guy Clark? <laughs> well, we had a nightclub in Louisville. It was called Butch Cassidy's. And uh, uh, we had, uh, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place in Nashville it's called the Exit Inn. It's a very famous place. And uh, back in those days, all of the recording artists, they came into Nashville they did their recording, and when they left, uh, they went on the road. And, uh, you know, they, they either had their buses or whatever they had, and they went in different directions. And the guy that ran the accident was a guy named Housley Muneer. But we had a nightclub in Louisville called Butch Cassidy's, and a lot of those acts that would leave would come through Louisville, we would sign them for one night. Well, Billy Joe Shaver uh, was coming through Louisville, so we signed Billy Joe Shaver. We actually signed Billy Joe for a week. Hmm. And Billy Joe came in, and uh, he had Guy Clark with him. Hell, everything was great. And uh, uh, I think the second or third night, uh, uh, Guy Clark, myself, and a couple of band members, maybe three of the band members, we went to another, we went to another joint. We went to a place called the Dew Drop Inn. <laughs> yeah, we were drinking, and uh, next thing you know, we started uh, pitching uh, nickels at, at, at a wall. And we were betting $100 a pitch, whoever got the closest to the wall. So this went on for a period of time, and we were both drinking pretty heavy. And uh, we got in an argument over one of the pitches about who was the closest to the wall. And next thing you know, uh, Guy Clark hit me. And when he hit me, he and I got in a fight, and uh, uh, we were duking it out. And, and all at once, a, one of those band members took a beer bottle, it hit me right across my nose. Oof. And uh, when I got hit with that beer bottle, the uh, next thing I know, I was, I was on the floor and they were doing a, doing a little bit of a toe dance on me. 
So I got outside the bar and I got underneath a car and they left. So I had a, I had a suede jacket on, I never will forget. So finally I go home, it's about uh, six o'clock in the morning. And I knock on the door, I lost my keys. Susan come to the door and she closed the door, she didn't recognize me. My nose was, was so mm. uh, deformed and there was so much blood on me. And then she opened the door and she said, oh my God. So anyway, I came in and, and I went over to suburban hospital and uh, uh, they couldn't do anything with my nose because it had, it was cut so bad. They went in and they cleaned my nose up, put ice on it. And I had to wait for the swelling to go down. And then I don't know, two or three days later, I went in and they operated on my nose. But uh, anyway, it was, uh, that was, that's what it was. I feel like I need to go through Guy Clark's catalog and see if he uh, if he wrote a song shortly after that that described the experience. He's such a, a good storyteller through music, after all. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm in the hospital, so uh, the guys that work for me, one of my partners, they went up the next day, and uh, Billy Joe's uh, their stay was caught cut short. Let's put it that way. It's just one of the many wild stories that you can read more about in Billy Walter's outstanding memoir. Billy, of course, is one of the most famous sports gamblers on the planet. You can imagine his life story is pretty wild, and that that story is indicative of what can be read in that memoir. It's titled Gambler Secrets from a Life at Risk. You can get it now wherever books are sold. If you missed part of this conversation, you can actually go to my podcast, booksonpod.com, and hear the full thing in its entirety. Otherwise, stay tuned, because coming up on the other side, it's a continuation of my hour-long conversation with Billy Walters on Gambler, right here on Sports Day Plus on 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back for one final segment with renowned sports gambler Billy Walters on his excellent new memoir, Gambler. If you miss any of this conversation, want to hear it in its entirety, you go to my podcast, Books on Pod. Find that website, booksonpod.com, or search Books on Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. And that was in September of 1982. What was Vegas like back then? Obviously, we know what Vegas is like now, the place that uh, what happens there stays there. But what was early 80s Vegas like for you? Early 80s Vegas was way, way better than it is today, as far from my perspective. And there were things about it that weren't as good. Uh, in early 80s, there was still a lot of organized crime there, and that wasn't good. Everything else about Vegas was much better. I mean, uh, smaller, the what is much traffic, it was much safer. You didn't have nearly the crime that you have in Las Vegas today. The... Hotels, the shows, uh, everything, nothing was nearly as crowded as it is. It was just entirely different. Trey, the main thing about moving to Las Vegas, see, back in those days, if you were a gambler, a sports better or a bookmaker, most people didn't understand the difference. Most people thought you were involved with organized crime. And then most people thought, well, you're some kind of a crook or degenerate or something. People were just kind of ignorant about understanding people who gamble. Well, when I moved to Las Vegas, I moved to the gaming capital of the world. Uh, I was surrounded by people such as myself. They weren't ignorant about gambling. So I moved to a city that, you know, I could be a respected member of the community. I could I could do the things you do in any community. 
but yet I could uh, I, I, I could su- I could succeed at uh, at my craft, and so it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now early on, you know there were issues there with organized crime that you had to you had to work around, and uh, and that wasn't good. And and as I told the story in the book, I have an encounter there, and uh, uh, and I had to deal with that. Uh, but once that was over. Uh, I couldn't have lived in a better city in the United States than Las Vegas. Uh, I feel that way today. I mean, is it as appealing to me as it was then? Absolutely not, because it's gotten too big. There's so many things about Vegas today that I really don't like. But I moved to Las Vegas in 1982. I was broke. I was $200,000 in debt. So everything that that I have accomplished business-wise and financially I went to Las Vegas, and I'll never forget it. So, you know, we've been involved with that community, and we'll continue to be involved with that community as long as we're alive and deeply involved, whether it be various charities or, or, or civically or whatever it is. You make sure to give credit and thanks to a lot of people who helped you out early on in y'all's time in Vegas. That includes guys like Lester Ben Binion, the casino owner and Vegas insider, and then also Chip Reese, who was your friend on top of being one of the best poker players on the planet back then. What did he teach you about money management that sticks with you to this day? Yeah, Trey, when I moved to Las Vegas, I'll describe myself to you. I was a real dangerous gambler. You know, when I was sober, I wasn't drinking. I knew what I was doing. But the other thing that made me dangerous is I would bet it all. I really, you know, I don't know why. I can't tell you why, but I never had any fear of getting broke. But when I moved to Las Vegas, the problem was, was I, I still was drinking, and I wasn't a good money manager. I mean, if I lost my money, I was going to try to chase it down until I got it. Either I broke you or you broke me, regardless of, of whether I had the best of it or not. Chip was actually my second partner. My first partner is kind of funny. was Doyle Brunson. So I go there, and, and uh, Doyle's my partner, and we're going to bet sports. And back in those days... You know, most people, and still today, most people, they don't think there's any way you can win betting on 30 ball games a week. It's They think it's like it's impossible. So Doyle agreed to be my partner when I first went there and put up, and our partnership was, he put up all the money and I did the handicapping and we were going to split things 50-50. Well, the first week, uh, and this was in 1982, we had a really bad week. We lost a million dollars. And uh, I thought Doll was gonna, he was gonna hang himself. <laughs> he was livid. And, and and the guy that actually sent me to Doll, Billy Baxter, Doll called Billy Baxter up, cussed him out. He says, "You ain't never done a damn thing good for me in your life." And Billy <laughs> told him, "Said, well, Doll, said I'm just not that smart." <laughs> <laughs> so the next week we bet on thirty games again, and we won all of our money back. We're like 225,000 winner. So Doyle said, I can't take this anymore. And uh, so Doyle quit. And when he quit, I had to have a new financial partner. So Chip was my new financial partner. Chip's background, he was from Dayton, Ohio. He, he'd gone to Dartmouth. He was on his way to Stanford Law School. He stopped in Las Vegas to play in a poker tournament, and he never left. Best all-around poker player in the world at the time. Great money manager. And in order to live in Las Vegas and be successful, you must be a good money manager. So Chip's putting up all the money. I had no choice. I had to do what Chip wanted to do. 
we had a money management system. We followed the money management system. And uh, so that was one of the greatest uh, lessons that I learned was working with Chip and, and learning how to manage money. And uh, so um, take the, you know, you take the, uh, you take the, the personal element out of it. And the bottom line is it's, it's a business, nothing more than a business. You run it like a business and you don't let your personal emotions dictate whether you're going to make a bigger, better, or smaller bet or, or make a bet at all. It's strictly all driven by business. What was the computer group, Billy? Uh, when I was in Kentucky, when I started booking is when I originally got, uh, introduced to the computer group. And uh, there's a guy, his name was Michael Kent. And Michael Kent was from the Pittsburgh area. And Michael had worked for Westinghouse and uh, was working along with others in the development of a nuclear submarine. And uh, he was playing uh, in, a, in a softball league, an intramural softball league. And it interested him, so he decided he was going to write a computer software program to handicap the intramural softball, softball league. That's how it all began. And he took that program and decided he saw it was successful and decided he was going to use it to bet sports. So he went to Las Vegas to bet sports. Guy knew a lot about programming, computers, but knew nothing about gambling. So you can imagine what he ran into in Las Vegas. And he ultimately got introduced to a guy who Basically, you know, not a good guy, uh, but he didn't know it. He uh, he got introduced by a mutual friend to a guy, Ivan Mendelin, who was going to help him make these bets. And Ivan Mendelin hooked up with a couple of bookmakers in New York, a guy named Jimmy Everett and a guy named Stanley Thompson that he actually owed money to that he couldn't pay. And he told them that he had this software program that uh, – you know, that he was confident it would be successful. And so they agreed to move the money for him. If whatever money he won, he would take a portion of it to repay them the money that he owed them. And that's how it all began. And then the guys in New York, uh, it was very successful. I mean, I think the first day they made like 20 bets, they won 18 out of the first 20. So the more successful it became, the more they wanted to bet. And then that's when he started going outside of New York City. And then a guy from Pittsburgh actually started calling me, and he was betting me. I was booking. I was handicapping at the time, too. But unlike Mike Kent, I didn't have a computer. I had a pencil hmm. piece of paper. And uh, so it didn't take me any time to see. This was sharp action. So uh, I started taking it and getting rid of it and going with it. And then uh, they approached me and wanted to know if I would, would move money for them. Because I actually had a bigger market than they had. I had all the bookmakers in the South, and I had a, quite a few book, bookmakers in, in, on the West Coast that I could bet. So uh, I agreed to start moving money for them when I was in Kentucky. And then when I got arrested in Kentucky and I went to Las Vegas, I decided that bookmaking was over. There wouldn't be any more bookmaking because I didn't want to have any more problems with, uh, with authorities. Uh, so I moved to Las Vegas, and... Uh, I, be I became full-time involved with them and moving their money. I wasn't part of their group at the time. And they would give me an order. Uh, I, would, I would bet the amount of money they wanted to bet. I would bet whatever I wanted to bet. And uh, I would turn the rest back into them. I, I worked with them that way for 
probably uh, two years, and then uh, the there was a raid that took place in February of '85 by the FBI for the computer group, and they thought it was an organized group of bookmakers mm -hmm. instead of betters, and uh, they thought everyone was involved in organized crime, which no one was, but. Uh, they conducted a raid throughout the United States of 13, 14 places, confiscated a bunch of uh, records, monies. And then uh, finally in 1990, two weeks before the statute of limitations were to run out, uh, we were indicted and charged not with being bookmakers or not with anything else. We were charged with being part of a criminal conspiracy to bet. Now imagine this, Trey, in Las Vegas, Nevada, the gaming capital of the world, uh, in 1990, we were charged with being part of a criminal conspiracy conspiring to bet. So uh, that's uh, that's how I got involved with computer theory. Once that case it all started in in the early 80s, uh, the uh, uh, the computer group broke up, so to speak, and and Mike Kent and I partnered up, and uh, there was no one involved but Mike and myself from 19, uh, 1985, 1986 until Mike retired. Hitting pause on this conversation because we are out of time today. Join me tomorrow, though, for a continuation of my conversation with legendary sports gambler Billy Walters on his life story as told in the memoir that came out last year, Gambler, Secrets of a Life at Risk. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Hope you have a great rest of the evening. Talk to you tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.